Well, as we jump back into uh, the book of Habakkuk, um, I'll do just a quick refresher for us, uh, just to remind us of uh, where we left off since last week. We had just an awesome celebration Sunday, took a week off from Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk was an Old Testament prophet, uh, and he um, opens up his book with a dialogue. And this dialogue is between God, uh, God and Habakkuk, and it's about Habakkuk's view of Habakkuk's own people, the Jews, God's own people. They were living sinfully, disregarding God, and so he was complaining to God, saying, are you, are you really just going to sit back and watch your people sin in this way and disregard you and disrespect you? Why, why won't you do something about this? This is wrong. This is unjust. And God replies to him, and he says, don't worry. Don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm going to do something about it. Don't worry. I see it. I'm watching. You don't think I'm watching? Just like the, the song that we sang earlier from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long am I just going to have to counsel within myself, talk to myself? But God makes it clear to Habakkuk that God himself, he's going to fix the problem, but he's going to be raising up a great power in a wicked nation. And he's going to bring this nation to power in order to discipline Israel. That's his solution. Habakkuk no doubt wanted a simpler solution. Like, can't you just change their hearts like that, Lord? I know you can. He says, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to raise up this wicked and hasty nation, Babylon. The Chaldeans is what it says. The Babylonians. And God's going to use the might of the Babylonians to bring discipline unto the Jews. So he's saying to Habakkuk, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And of course, Habakkuk can't believe this. He gets mad at this word of the Lord. He's upset because it doesn't make sense to him. And so he does a bit of talking himself into it by saying, okay, but, but you're holy. I know you're holy. I know that you're a pure God. You can't even look upon evil. How can you who can't even look upon evil do such a thing by raising up a wicked nation? This makes absolutely no sense to me. Isn't there a different way you could go about doing this? And Habakkuk is honestly, very honestly wrestling with God, struggling to understand God's ways. And so two weeks ago, we saw that God responded to Habakkuk's complaint by saying, don't worry, you'll see, it's going to happen. This is going to happen. Write it down. I want you to write it down, and I want you to take it everywhere so that people know that when it happens, I'm the one who's doing it. They'll know for sure it was me because you wrote it down ahead of time. And so today, as we... See God continue his response to Habakkuk. He's going to give Habakkuk some encouragement, some assurance, some much-needed good news and much-needed perspective. Because in this life, without proper perspective, biblical perspective, eternal perspective, we are lost. We're in darkness. We're stuck just in the here and the now and the temporal and what's happening immediately. We don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Or if we do see the light at the end of the tunnel, we actually think it's an oncoming train. That's how cynical we get, how pessimistic we get. But here God gives Habakkuk and also us some confidence in God's long-term and eternal plan and ways. In particular in regards to how God will indeed deal justly with all of our trials, all of our pain, all of our suffering, and all of our enemies. Let me pray and ask the Lord to help us, to help us to see his word, that his word would form us, 
that we would want to have God's word shape us and shape our perspective and how we view our life and how we view him. Father in heaven, as we even just pray and I want to repeat the the words in the song from Psalm 45, that of all the children of men, of every human that has walked this planet, you are the fairest of all, the most beautiful of all, the most perfect and pure of all. In all the heavens and all the earth, there is no one like you. There is no other God but the God of Israel, the Lord of all creation, the Alpha and Omega, the first and last, King of kings, Lord of lords. You're the Word made flesh, the first and the last. You're God Almighty. You're all-powerful, all-wise. And you've adopted us as your sons and your daughters, and you've ransomed us. As your bride, you've taken our soiled and dirty and bloody clothing that we've marked up and marred over the course of our life with our own sin and even sin done to us. And you've ransomed us. You've taken off our filthy rags and you've put on us your white robe. And now we can come to you with our heads lifted high, singing and declaring to you that, God, we look forward to when you come back in glory. When you come back to this earth, back to the very spot that you ascended to heaven from, the Mount of Olives, in your holy city. And you show your face to the world, the world who has rejected you, but you come to this earth to show us your beauty and your glory and establish your kingdom forever and ever. And that day will come when you will put all of your enemies underneath your feet. We look forward to that day. And in the meantime, God, we're asking for help to understand, to trust, to believe. Lord, we say we believe, but help us in our unbelief. We need you, Lord. Holy Spirit, help us, lead us, guide us this morning. Lead us into all truth, as you do always. We love you and we thank you. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So here in chapter 2 of Habakkuk, starting in verse 6, this is God continuing his reply to Habakkuk. If you remember from last week, God was talking about how the Babylonians are going to come in and they're going to take captives. They're going to destroy cities. They're going to kill and plunder. And now he says, shall not all these, speaking of those very captives and victims, will not these captives and victims, will they not take up their taunt against him, against Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him? So he's talking about this, this future. He's saying, eventually though, yes, Babylon's going to come in. Your enemies are going to come in. Your enemies are going to have a heyday with you. But there will be a time when you will rise up and you're going to taunt even your enemies. Shall not all these captives, these victims, these nations, take up their taunt against him, Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him, to Babylon, who heaps up what is not his own? For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not, speaking to Babylon, your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? 
And then you, Babylon, you will be spoiled for them. The tables are going to turn on you. You will be the spoils of war. You'll be the treasures of war that your victims are going to take from you. Because you, Babylon, you have plundered many nations. All the remnants of the peoples, the people that you have oppressed, the leftovers, the ones that got away from, from your swords, those will plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him, to Babylon, who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You, Babylon, you've devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You've forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him, to Babylon, who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? We find this great promise in verse 14, in the middle of all these woes to Babylon, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But woe to him, to Babylon, who makes his neighbors drink. You, Babylon, you pour out your wrath and you make them drunk so that you can gaze upon their nakedness. You, Babylon, will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself, Babylon, and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. God gives Habakkuk some relief here. He says, don't worry, Habakkuk, I know what you're saying. I'm using a wicked nation to punish a nation that's less wicked than them. I, I, I know what I'm doing. But don't worry, Habakkuk. I'm pronouncing woes upon your enemies. Your enemies will not live forever. The ones who have taken from you, stolen from you, I will punish them forever. I want to highlight something that's very important. God had Habakkuk write down this vision that we saw two weeks ago. He wanted everyone to see it in writing. So that, truthfully, yes, Babylon will be coming to take them into captivity. That was the statement that was being written down, and he encouraged them to wait for it and not be arrogant when nothing happens. Well, God said he was going to bring Babylon, but I don't see anything happening. He says, no, 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 write it down. Write it out in stone. It's going to happen. Wait for it. And he did this because as he promised this devastation would come, his eventual hope and goal is that hopefully by foretelling of these things, when they do actually happen, and they will, God would, these people would recognize that this is indeed the hand of the Lord. And hopefully this would be their wake-up call. His goal, God's goal, his desire is the repentance of his people. The turning of their eyes and hearts away from their worthless idols, their false hope, their self-sufficiency, their godlessness. See, giving them blessing after blessing after blessing, that actually has not given them a deep gratitude for him. He's given them so much, and yet 
Instead of turning their hearts towards him, they turn their hearts from him and just towards the things themselves. It's only increased their appetite for the blessings, but not an appetite for God himself. So rather, they take God for granted and they ignore him. Have you ever had the feeling when someone spends time with you, certain people, they spend time with you, and you get that feeling that they're only kind of hanging out with you because you got something kind of cool? You know, maybe it's a nice house, or they want to ride with you because you got a nice car, or whatever it might be, or, or you get hookups to your favorite sports event or something like that. You kind of get that feeling sometimes that some people just hang out with you because they can kind of get something from you. You've probably had those friends, and maybe you've actually even been one of those friends before. But as soon as you're not available for them, or the thing isn't available for them, oh yeah, sorry, I, I, I can't get any tickets, but you want to come over to my house and watch the game? Oh, no, no, I, I think I got plans that night. What? Like, you just asked me for tickets for that game. All of a sudden, they, they bail on you. Or imagine if your kids only loved you, quote unquote, because of what you gave them, what you offered them, what you do for them, how comfortable their life is, the toys that they have, the things that you do as a family, how you bless them. And they only loved you for that. Now, I hope, my wife hopes, and I know that you parents hope that your kids love you for you that they want to be with you, not the, just the things that you offer. And as a parent, you love to offer your kids things, but you hope that that's not the only reason that they love you. Imagine if I gave my kids dessert every single night of the week, or we went to Disneyland every single Saturday or whatever it was, and then one night or one weekend, I said, oh, yeah, no, we're not having dessert. Oh, no, we're not going there this weekend. That would probably be an insurrection in my house. If they got so used to something and not appreciating those things, and then all of a sudden I withhold it, all of a sudden it kind of jars them, wakes them up. As parents, many times to help reveal the hearts of our children when they're elevating things upon an altar of worship, we might withhold the very thing being worshipped in order to really expose how bad that itch in their life and in their heart has become. Now in this case, God's people have not had their eyes or their hearts towards God. They've been enjoying His blessings to the point that they just take it for granted. Now they expect it. They live with no regard to God, but rather worship the things that he has given them. Food and drink, money, sex and relationships, comfort, power, whatever it might be. And so God now, because of his desire to have their hearts turn from idolatry, turn from sin, he's now gonna be going to more drastic measures. But he doesn't just do it just to do it. He doesn't do it out of some kind of unbridled anger. And he's not doing it just to get back at them because he's angry. See, there's a difference between punishment and discipline. Punishment is to make someone pay out of anger. You want to have something given back to you because you're angry. You want revenge, so you punish somebody. A lot of times in our marriages or in our homes with our kids, we punish because we want someone to pay for something. But discipline is different. Discipline is done because we want someone to grow. To change. It's the same root word as discipleship. Discipline is to disciple somebody, to help them, to help them succeed. When I coach, oftentimes when I start off a new team or it's a new season, I'll tell the kids, kids, I'm, I'm going to yell sometimes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct you. But I want you to know, and I do this at the beginning of the season, I say, I want you to know I am not going to be doing this out of punishment. I'm not doing this out of anger. I'm not gonna make you do something because you disrupted me. I'm gonna, I'm gonna discipline you, 
but it's because I want to see you succeed as a baseball player, succeed as a kid, as a teammate. It's not because I'm punishing you because I don't like you, but I'm going to discipline you because I actually believe that you can succeed. And telling them that ahead of time helps them know, okay, when Coach Joby gets loud, I know he's not angry at me. And I have, to, I have to prove that over the course of a season. I have to prove that with my actions and my words and how I do that. But this team knows that I'm not here to get angry. And actually, uh, when I was talking uh, to the kids about this about two months ago, uh, we had a new team and an old team kind of combined. And uh, one of the older boys, who I've had for a while, raised his hand and he goes, Coach, have you ever actually gotten mad in your life? Because I've had him for like a year and a half and they just don't see me do that. I, I say it and then I have to hold myself accountable to it. And I'm tempted. And they're you know, teenagers, you know. And, uh, and my two boys were there, Liam and Mike, and I said, well, maybe you should ask these guys instead. And they both said, no, I don't, and, which I was kind of surprised about, but <laughs> thank you. Thank you, son. Um, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that I, I have to choose to not let myself get angry and then punish people. I choose, though, discipline, and that's not easy. But God here is not just arbitrarily bringing this about because he's just angry and wants to punish Make them pay for something. He, there's a purpose behind it. He wants them to see that this, this discipline of Babylon coming upon Israel is truly from him in order for them to see that it is truly actually him and see who he is. To see his infinite greatness and beauty above all things, the things that even they've been worshiping. And so now this is the specific case of the Jews in this instance that this discipline coming upon them is because of sin but I want you just to know that the Bible is very clear that not all suffering is the result of God bringing about some kind of corrective discipline. In this case, it is. Israel is rebelling against God, so God is bringing about some discipline. They're going to be suffering under the hands of the Babylonians. But that is not always the case. Not all suffering is because of some kind of discipline because of sin. The Bible is very clear about that. You think of the story of Job. There was nothing that Job was doing wrong. Though his counselors actually said, Job, I, I think you got some secret sin. He's like, no, honestly, like, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> but the counselor says, no, 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 there's got has got to be sin. He's like, no. And Job didn't know what's going on behind the scenes. Or you think of Paul and his thorn in the flesh. He says, I've got this thorn in the flesh that I, I prayed three times and it'd be gone. It doesn't seem at all that that was because of sin. It actually seems that that was to prevent sin. That discipline, that thorn in the flesh, whatever it was, it wasn't because of Paul's sin. It was actually to prevent him to become prideful and turn his back on God. So sometimes even discipline is to prevent future sin, to keep you humble. But the best example we can use of someone who suffered and not because of sin is Jesus himself. He suffered at the hands of men. He was crucified, spit upon, had his beard plucked out. This wasn't the discipline of God for Jesus' sin. So the Bible is clear that not all hardship, sickness, not all suffering is because of some discipline of sin. But in this case, and sometimes in our life, and we might not know, like Job, he had no idea. But in this case here, this is the case. God is bringing about this discipline to help them to repent. And so to ensure that they see clearly where it's coming from, he tells Habakkuk to write this down and make it plain. Why does he do this? Why does he want him to write it down? So when the trial comes, they have the sure and clear word of God to give them assurance. See, church, we store up our 
the, the promises of God, we store up his word in our hearts so that in the day of calamity, the day of hardship, we can have assurance. We store up his word just like the Israelites, hopefully were storing up this word in their hearts so that when it came, they said, okay, this is God. This isn't random. God's doing this. And, and that gives us a little hope because we know that he's in control, even though this is scary, but, but he's told us this would happen. And now for us in our day of calamity, we have assurance, we have peace and trust and more confidence. As we store up God's word in our hearts, it's so that we might not sin against him. Now if we don't have God's word written down for us, then when our hardship comes, just like with the Jews, we won't know how or where to turn to. We'll just be a mess with no direction, no foundation. But God's desire is for us to know where to turn. doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Still gonna be a struggle, just like Habakkuk wrestled with God. It won't be easy. It doesn't make the Jews' captivity or experience of captivity any easier, but it makes their endurance through it to be possible. But thankfully, the story doesn't end here. Habakkuk has an interesting statement. He says, Why do you use something evil to punish something less evil? And God graciously gives him the answer, the answer that we read as we opened up this morning. He says, don't worry, I see their wickedness too. The Babylonians will not go unpunished. He assures Habakkuk. He assures him that God's will will be done. My will will be done, Habakkuk, on earth as it is in heaven. Now, church, we might not have a Babylonian nation surrounding us, but we have plenty of other enemies that surround us. And we often wonder, God, why are you bringing such evil into my life, such hardship? And these enemies aren't necessarily people, but we have the enemies of death, sickness, sin, poverty, wickedness, cancer, brokenness, divorce. We have so many things that surround us and overtake us, and they all seem to be having great success today. And we don't know when the end is going to be. It just seems like it's just this constant black hole. And the enemy seems to be laughing at us today. And I don't just mean the enemy, Satan. I just mean even sickness seems to be laughing at us, mocking us. Relationship problems just mock us, plague us. We, seem, they can't, we can't get away from the, the problems. But rest assured, God's word tells us the day will come when all of God's enemies will be placed under the feet of Jesus and the very last enemy to be destroyed, God's word says, will be death itself. All of these enemies, including death, will be thrown into the lake of fire forever and ever. They're having their day today, but their punishment will be forever. That day, church, is coming for us when there will be no more weeping in our sorrows and in our pain. And those who have suffered, who have endured pain and hardship, they will leap for joy, as we sang with their heads lifted high, singing with their voices lifted high. They're going to leap for joy and be freed from the shame and the scorn of pain and suffering and sorrow. Our enemies, both visible and invisible, physical, spiritual, mental, emotional, those enemies are all going to be destroyed, church. If you remember from the Lord of the Rings, as Sam Gamgee asked Gandalf, is, it every, is everything sad going to come untrue? Is that true, Gandalf? Is everything sad going to come untrue? 
Everything sad that's been in existence, are you gonna just make it go away? What was once true is now gonna become untrue. C.S. Lewis says, this is in your notes, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, temporary suffering in this life. Some people say, no future bliss, no eternal bliss can make up for the suffering I'm enduring right now. They say that not knowing that heaven, once attained, once we have heaven, is gonna work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. Somehow, church, I don't know how. I understand how that works, but somehow, when we attain heaven, we attain that future glory. Once it attained, we, we attain it, it will work backwards and turn even the agony of this life into some kind of glory. In Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, John says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. They've become untrue. They've been obliterated, cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. No more pain, no sorrow, no sickness, no death, no sin. And we have this great promise, not as a generic hope, like, oh, I, I really hope this happens. It's not wishful thinking. It's not guesswork. But we have the great promises that were written down for us so that we can have a foundation. We can have something that we rest upon something we can hold on to because he's caused them to be written down so that we can know. And he even tells us, as he did Habakkuk, if it seems slow, Lord, how long will I have to endure you turning your, your eyes and your back on me forever? How long, oh Lord? He says, if it seems long, wait for it. Trust me, this promise will come true. For Habakkuk, it was the promise that Babylon's coming. For us, it's the promise that Jesus Christ is coming. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Peter says this to the church, that the church that was going through so much suffering, they were being persecuted by Rome. He says, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, speaking to the church, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. But the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, even though some count him as being slow. Some people accuse God of being too slow. When is this gonna end? When is this gonna change? But the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's actually patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. While we wait, church, and endure in this life, it seems to be, for us, it's like thousand years that we go through suffering and torment, dealing with our own sin, dealing with the oppression of other people in our life that have it out for us. But we wait. We wait. We wait because we know that he will fulfill his promise. We know that justice will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the Lord gives Habakkuk this promise in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So church, don't be dismayed. Don't let discouragement overtake you. And I know that even just me saying that is easier said than done. It sounds trite. 
And I believe the worst advice we can ever give someone starts with the phrase, you just. You just need to believe. You just need to repent. You just need, we're just given like these little kind of just these trite commands to people as if they can just snap their fingers and just all of a sudden have faith. Don't ever start your counsel with the phrase, you just. You should just be doing this. No, we don't go around telling people what they're doing wrong and just give them some quick fix as if it's all in their control. This is why God gave us his word. It's not easy. It's even impossible to just snap your fingers and just do something differently or just believe the best about a situation when you're in suffering. When darkness surrounds you and the darkness doesn't lift. When confusion abounds like it did for Habakkuk. When anger and bitterness has made a camp in your heart. We need more than just simply you just. And God's word gives us exactly that. More than just you just. See, we start with his word, his promises that have been written down clearly and given to his people through all generations. And rather than just going around saying, you just need, you should do this, we can say, no, because of this great truth here, then therefore this. But we start not at the therefore, you just need to do this. No, we start at the because. Because of who God is, because of what he has done because of his commitment to you, because he is eternal, he's everlasting, because he will not ever leave you nor forsake you, because he's adopted you as his son, his daughter, because he's purchased you with the blood of Christ, because his blood never loses its power, then therefore you can turn to him and believe. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 15 just a few because and therefore sections of scripture here. Not necessarily in the order because and therefore, but, but both of them are here. He said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, don't be afraid and don't be dismayed at this great horde of people coming against you. Now, if it was just that, you just need to not be afraid. I could think that Judah... And King Joseph could be saying, hey, thanks for that. That's easier said than done, though. But then if they did interrupt him, as if the Lord would say, look, I'm not finished. Because here's why. Here's why you cannot be dismayed. Here's why you can be patient. Because the battle is not yours, but it is God's. Because that truth is real, then therefore we can say, God, give me patience. Give me trust, give me hope. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10 through 12. Fear not, for I, the Lord, I'm with you. Be not dismayed. Well, that's easy for you to say. You're God. Don't interrupt me. I'm not done. You can fear not and not be dismayed because you're right. I am God, and I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all the people who are incensed against you, they hate you, they're going to be put to shame. They're going to be confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who are against you shall be as nothing at all. Because of that truth, and therefore, you don't have to be dismayed. God promises the Babylonians in his woes, 
In the same way that he also promises his other enemies and our enemies, sickness, death, woe to him, going back to verse 15 in Habakkuk 2, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk. Babylon pours out their wrath upon other people, makes them drunk so that they can gaze at their nakedness, take advantage of them. But Babylon, you're going to have your fill. You're going to have your fill of shame instead of glory. You want glory, don't you, Babylon? You're not going to have it. I'm going to fill you with shame. Drink yourself, Babylon. Show your uncircumcision. You make yourself bare. Show how you're cut off from me. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. Babylon, you've been ravaging and exposing people in shame and fear and bitterness and now it's your turn to be exposed. He says, you will be filled. This is an ironic statement here because they wanted to be filled with glory. He goes, oh yeah, you're gonna get your fill all right, but with shame. The Lord's enemies, including death, including sickness, all sorrow, all emptiness, depression, everything, all of our enemies, they want their fill. God's word says that death and destruction are never full. Hell is never satisfied. It always wants more, more, more. And so these things, they pillage lust, pornography, gossip and sickness, cancer, greed and pride. They lust for more. They want to overtake our hearts more and more and more. They want us to worship them. And they're bent on destroying us to get their fill. But God says, you're going to get your fill. Pornography, you're going to get your fill. Lust, you're going to get your fill. Gossip, you're going to get your fill. Cancer, you're going to get your fill. I'm going to fill you with shame. And I'm going to throw you into the pit of hell, into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. You will become nothing for all eternity. Every single enemy will be placed under the feet of Jesus. And they will have no more power, no more strength, no more glory. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says that Jesus disarmed principalities and powers. It's a biblical word for the demonic, for spiritual uh, uh, entities that are doing evil against us. He's disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. He's going to put all of his enemies on display and mock them, making an example of them. All these things that have come against us for so many years, and we thought this would never end. But he will not be mocked. His justice will be served. In Isaiah 41 that I read earlier, he tells his people that his mighty right hand will uphold us. But here in Habakkuk, he tells his enemies that his mighty right hand will pour out his cup of wrath upon them. See, we get the promise that his mighty right hand is going to lift us up. But for the enemies, the mighty right hand of God is going to pour out his cup of wrath upon them. Though we, his people, may be disciplined, we're going to be disciplined in our life, but it's only his enemies that are truly punished. And they will be punished. Even if we think that that day never comes, we know that it will come because it's been written down. And it's been written down so that we can have a great and sure hope that the victory is indeed his church. He has won this war. The battle has been won, but in the meantime, we are in the midst still of this war. I'd like to close with Galatians chapter 6. 
verse 7 through 9, as Paul gives the Galatian church some encouragement to give them patience, to give them perspective, to give them hope as they endure their own suffering in this temporal world. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 9 through 9, he says, don't be deceived, don't be fooled. Okay, just because it seems like things are taking long, don't, don't be fooled by that. Don't be fooled by this modern temporary clock. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. All the enemies of God that seem to be triumphing over the earth, triumphing in your life, they're laughing at you, they're mocking you, mocking God. Don't worry, God isn't mocked. Seems like he is right now, but he's not going to be mocked. Whatever one sows, that also he's going to reap. See, the Babylonians were sowing shame. They're sowing exposure, nakedness, pillaging. They're going to reap the same thing. The enemies that have come against us, sickness, pain, death, sin, pornography, those things have sown certain things into our life. They're going to reap the same thing. He says, don't worry, God won't be mocked. He's saying to Habakkuk, don't worry, I'm not going to be mocked. I, I see the Babylonians too. You don't have to point out that they're more evil than Israel. Don't worry, I won't be mocked. I will deal with them. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, for our own selfish gain, will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so let us not grow weary, church. Let's not grow weary of doing good, turning our faces towards our Savior, worshiping Him, trusting Him because of what He's done. Therefore, we do not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't give up. We will reap in due season, if we don't give up. Psalm 30, verse five says, weeping indeed, it comes in the night, but joy comes in the morning. We will weep for a season. It takes us into the night, the dark part of our soul, but joy comes in the morning. And I know that that morning just seems like it's taking forever. He says, no, I'm not slow. You might think I'm slow, but I'm not slow. I've had you write down over the course of generations these promises so that you can have the sure promises of God in the time of mourning, in the time of sorrow, so that you will know I am not slow. I will fulfill the promise that I made to you. Church, he is a good God. He's a good father. He loves us. He's adopted us. And he's ransomed us. And we can walk with our heads lifted high with our voices singing high. Because we have the great promises of God, the sureness of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are truly a holy, perfect, and pure God. Your ways, your mind, your word is above my words, my mind, my ways. I don't completely understand how you work and 
Honestly, uh, part of me is very glad that I can't understand because if I could figure you out, then you wouldn't be a very good God. But I know that you are above me. I know that you're more wise than me, and I, I love knowing that. I love having my faith in that. But God, we, like Habakkuk, we, we struggle. We wrestle in our faith. We r- wrestle in our understanding of how you're, how you're gonna fix all this stuff. We look around this world and everything is broken. This world is broken. And I know that in my impatience, sometimes I think, like Psalm 13, Lord, are you even seeing what's going on? I think like Habakkuk. Do you see what's going on here? How long, O oh Lord? Why are you taking so long? God, I know that it's good for me to wrestle with you. Help me. Help me by the power of your Holy Spirit living and dwelling in me through the power of your word. That Your spirit would lead me into those promises to help me in my unbelief. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness towards us. Help us to trust. Give us patience and endurance, strength of heart.